Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Euh, dites donc, Nadej, euh, comment aviez-vous recruté le nouveau si rapidement la dernière fois Bah, LinkedIn. Ah bon, parce que là, j'ai besoin de toute urgence d'un ingénieur en IA. Alors, où est-ce qu'on peut le trouver Bah, LinkedIn. Mais j'ai pas le temps de voir mille candidats, moi. Comment on va faire Bah, LinkedIn. Bah, 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 vu l'urgence, vous êtes vraiment confiante, Nadej Bah, oui. Avec 8 personnes recrutées par minute sur LinkedIn, pour tous vos recrutements, il y a, bah, LinkedIn. Pour en savoir plus, rendez-vous sur linkedin.com slash je recrute. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the Opinion Podcast from The Times. I'm Philip Webster, Assistant Editor of Politics at The Times and Editor of the Redbox Email Bulletin and website. I'm standing in for Tim Montgomery, who's traveling in the studio today. I'm pleased to say we have three gleaming stars from the Times firmament. Patrick Kidd, the diary editor, the most informed and wittiest diary editor since the last one. Anne Ashworth, who runs our bricks and mortar and money sections. And Danny Finkelstein, star commentator, doyen of all commentators. 20 years after allowing women to be priests, the stained glass ceiling preventing them becoming Anglican bishops has been shattered. Amen to that. Next on the order of service, allow, but importantly not force, churches to offer gay marriage if they want it, and get the state to recognise and reward the crucial big society work that churches do. In next month's autumn statement, the Chancellor will rightly laud the latest rise in the building of new homes. Nevertheless, a dilemma faces the coalition, and it's the same dilemma that's facing every other political party. How do they reconcile the desire of the members of Generation Rent for a home of their own with the vehement opposition for the anti-development lobby whose members, let's remember, are more likely to vote than 20-somethings? If David Cameron is returned as Prime Minister next May, will he serve a full term? And if you asked him, would he say what he was going to do? I doubt it. This is just one reason why David Owen, Lord Owen, is right to argue that should at least be a debate on term limits for Prime Ministers. So, Patrick Kidd, we know that when the legislation was going through the Commons and the Lords, the government wrote in at the request of the Church of England that it would be actually be illegal for gay marriage services to be held in churches, in Church of England churches. How do you think that the political world can be persuaded to make this next bold step that you're proposing here? Well, they wrote that in under pressure from certain factions within the church, but I, th- I think it's it, in, in the 21st century to uh, uh, have passed legislation to allow gay marriage, which is one of David Cameron's most uh, brave steps that he took, but to actually say that churches cannot rather than they may offer it, I think is, is grossly wrong. Um, churches reflect the society they're in. There are plenty of gay members of the community, of the congregation, plenty of them in, in established partnerships. In fact, my former priest is living with a gardener, but he's not allowed to uh, 
not that I want him to say that he's having sex, but he's not allowed to even acknowledge that they have any sort of relationship. And if they wanted to get married, they wouldn't be allowed to do that. It, it strikes me as a, a desperate last step of staying in the 19th century that the church is, is refusing that. And, and there's sort of two points that I want to make, that actually churches build communities. Churches do a lot of the work that David Cameron was talking about coming into government, the big society work, food banks are being run by, by churches, and yet they're in desperate financial states. So I like to get the social equality bit out of the way quickly so we can properly focus on how to allow churches to survive and thrive. Danny Finkelstein, it was put forward as one of the great modernising projects of the, of the Cameron years, but it has hurt him with oh, yeah. a big section of the party. Do you think he ever regrets pushing that legislation through? I think he does acknowledge the political damage it did him. Yes, not with, with party members, and quite a lot of them did leave, and it was one of the reasons for UKIP's activist-based. But at the same time, um, he feels very strongly that it was the right thing to do, and I'm pretty militant about it. I mean, the, prob the reason why churches were uh, not merely exempted but disallowed in this way was that some people worried that if they weren't, the courts would be used to force churches uh, to, to do this. So therefore, they were taken out of the game completely. Like the bed and breakfast couple being banned exactly so that was the reason why this was done i mean i, I wasn't happy about it because i'm as i say pretty pretty militant on the subject but i acknowledge the need to make some compromises to get the legislation through it'll come in time this yeah. change uh, inevitably but it's like women bishops if i may so so the legislation for women bishops first came in in 1978 it took us until 1994 to allow women priests once you've agreed that principle that women can administer communion and tend to a flock it's purely a promotion issue after that um, allowing them to move on from being women to bishops people have now accepted that you can have uh, civil partnerships but it's almost as if they're fighting against the fact that they, they don't like the whole idea of gay sex that, that's why they're opposed to it and so opposing gay marriage is their way of just resisting a bit further. Well, the opposition came from people who don't like the idea of gay sex. That is exactly what the opposition was, which yes. is why it had to be resisted so fiercely. Yes. Uh, the truth is, you know, and, and to its eternal discredit, I'm afraid, there are quite a lot of Conservatives who take that view, and it was very damaging with uh, him. That's mainly yes. because they come from a certain age group inside the party activist base, but also there are people in Britain who take that view, and that was, of course, what, what happened. It is just, just one, one, one point of that. It is different to a, a bed-and-breakfast couple not allowing a gay couple to stay, although I'd almost defend their right to do that, much as I dislike their, their views. I don't understand why anyone would want to get married by a priest who doesn't support and love what they're doing in a, in a church that doesn't give them their support. So I don't see actually it would come... Why would you want to go to court to be married in a place that doesn't well, want to... It, it was, this, is, this is a hypothetical situation and the government was trying to get its legislation mm. through against yeah. great political difficulties. As I say, it's not a compromise that I... I wanted to see happen. I didn't feel I could intervene into it a tremendous amount being Jewish, um, but uh, but it was something that people in the church felt that they wanted and would act as a legal protection. In time, it'll be changed. It's not a, it's not a good thing, but at least the legislation was protected. Um, I'm interested to know what churches are lobbying on this. Are they quietly requesting behind the scenes to be able to conduct gay marriages. I mean, are there any particular members of the Church of England who are particularly vocal on this point and saying, look, it is only logical that we should be able to offer a religious service to people who want to be joined in holy matrimony? There have been revolts, haven't there, Patrick? There's, there's several several priests have gone ahead and done it in defiance of... Uh, well, this is priests specifically getting married to, to other priests, yeah. uh, as well as conducting the yeah. services. 
the very least they, they want to be able to formally bless um, but this is an, an individual church thing is the, the Anglican, Anglican communion is a very broad church and you have evangelicals who don't like the idea of homosexuality I come from the high church Anglican thing where it's more or less obligatory <laughs> certainly the bell smells and frocks there's, there's plenty of gay members of, of congregations uh, not myself but, <laughs> um, I, but I, I quite like that sort of uh, frippery um, so is this not a case for the perfect British compromise where some churches are able to offer this yes. and others are excluded well, at the moment non-church of England churches I think can Yes, none of them some of them, some, I think some yes. of them are, are allowed to. There have been some but this marriages was not about, in churches. It's very important to remember, this wasn't really about trying to forbid people from doing it. It was about reassuring the church they wouldn't be forced to do it by using a legal lock that was even tighter than it needed to be in order to make sure the court, in order to make sure the argument that uh, this isn't going to be a voluntary activity, it's going to be compulsory, was not allowed to take wing. And it was done under political pressure from inside the Conservative Party and from people who might leave to join UKIP. And it, you know, it has to be understood, it was an extremely costly political decision. Yes. Correct, in my view, I'm strongly correct. And in the long run, also inevitable, both morally and politically. Uh, but uh, still costly and yeah. therefore this was done for that reason and in time because it was done for what really doesn't amount to a logical political reason it will be undone we will take the next step you know, undoubtedly you're correct to, to, to argue for it I can understand um, the political motivation you're correct to argue Patrick, for it. do you think the in the end this will come from uh, the church itself or from politicians when we get there I think Justin Welby has a very difficult position because he of course has as members of his uh, house of bishops who have different views on this as well and Rowan Williams bottled this um, as he bottled a few decisions unfortunately and I think gradually a groundswell will build up and, and uh, Danny is right things will just happen but it, it is exactly like women priests becoming bishops the argument's been had and it's now just the degree of yeah he's been very successful by the way in, in, in achieving what he's achieved on, on women bishops it's quite a big step forward yeah they brought in um, people who've been involved in the Northern Ireland peace process to actually work out reconciliation <laughs> between the factions which is how, though, would this resonate outside London <coughs> metropolitan circles? Because I think we have to concede that there are people who do not agree this, will never agree with this, and if told that churches could go freely ahead and conduct such ceremonies, would feel absolutely incensed. Or will they come round in the wind eventually? You have to hope that in the end bigotry dies out. You know, people, mm. pe you know, there's no doubts. I mean, I, I work in a, live in a different uh, religious community, the mm. Jewish community, but there are people there who take that view. And dif difficult though it is for me to conceive what their reasoning might be, they do take that view, and that's the reason why it's been politically yes. difficult. Um, however. Um, important on these kind of issues to say I acknowledge how you feel uh, I understand the view that you do that you have and if you want to call it London Metropolitan or Elite you can if you like but it isn't uh, and um, we robustly hold on to our view however to get this through politically it was necessary mm. to do this the Cameron government's not going to revisit it very quickly I'm sure mm. no, um, no. so we'll have to wait some time but it will be revisited at some we'll point. give Patrick the last word on this well this was just to, to, to recognize the, the other bit of, of what I was saying is that you can almost throw a bone to the church by, by recognizing the good work that churches do as I said food banks involvement with charities in the community and yet they are in gross financial um, problems I'm, I'm a member of the Southwark Diocese Synod and we're, we're going to make a £400,000 loss this year 
churches are, are running you know a thousand pounds a month uh, below what their their running costs are if there is something that the government can do to actually be it tax rebates or grants or something like that to, to allow with repairs you're allowed to if you're listed building um, reclaim VAT but something more should be done rather than just saying the big society churches play an important part of it and then ignoring it and perhaps if if the government could support churches in that way then the church might in turn recognize that the government's social agenda is worth uh, helping moving on seamlessly to the autumn statement which is only a couple of weeks away now Anne Ashworth perhaps you'd tell us about this great dilemma that we're facing over providing a home for, for, for young people these days well, every politician has, has told us they're going to be building 200,000-plus new homes by 2020. Whenever I hear that, I feel very, very sceptical because there are so many barriers towards achieving that aim, including the difficulty that house builders face in getting hold of, of public sector land that's surplus to requirements. We know two million homes could be built on such land but you know whenever house builders try to get hold of that land the process is long cumbersome and quite often very unrewarding meanwhile there is a group for whom the news that more homes will be built is anathema they see that as concreting over our green and pleasant land and I wonder whether we need um, some candor on the part of politicians to say, look, we love to say that we'll be able to deliver new homes, but we know the people that vote for us. Great many of them are anti-development, I would almost say NIMBY, and feel that we should rather reduce the numbers of people coming to these islands than build new homes for them. I would love to hear the politician that actually gets up and says, the dream of home ownership and the ability to have a home of your own was only a short-lived phenomenon of the latter part of the 20th century and maybe the first part of the, the first decade of this century. Ever after, it will be difficult unless you've got rich parents and you will be renting. And that raises another question, exactly where are people going to rent as, the, as social housing diminishes, the private sector, rented sector grows and rents rise. I think there's a big mess in housing and nobody is being candid so about it. So you think the rent generation is really here to stay? You sound quite pessimistic about what can be done by any political party. I think we're getting house building going. That's really great for the economy. But the ability to deliver, deliver the numbers of homes we need, nobody will be able to do it in my view. And we will have to say to a whole generation who cannot rely on the bank of mum and dad, you'll be renting for longer, but they will be paying more because the supply of rented accommodation is not sufficient to meet needs. And so we've got all kinds of pressures on a particular generation, but do politicians care? These, when these people contact um, bricks and mortar, they say, we don't vote, so do politicians care about our situation. Danny, what do you what do you think? How do how do how how does a conservative, a conservative or a Labour MP in a in a in a very plush area, knowing that that in their heart his constituents don't want to see a big hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Influx of homes, how do they handle it? Well, it's very difficult. I mean, they handle it in the obvious way of going with their constituents against prospective constituents who don't live there yet. And that is just what, how politics works. And no speeches or persuasive arguments will persuade someone to allow someone else to build a house on top. I mean, we were, we, the Times this, this morning ran a, an article about two people arguing about a ditch and spending half a million pounds in legal fees arguing about a ditch. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I don't think either of them would have been persuaded by speech. Truth is, you have to find policy ways around uh, the issue that Anne talks about and there really are only two that I can think of although Anne has also already thought of a third which is to encourage people to accept the idea of renting one is to build upwards uh, so therefore you're taking up less space and although you are putting more pressure on public services and people will resist that you know the footprint is I suppose less uh, and the other is to try to develop outwards into places which are less well developed and that's the idea behind the northern powerhouse and uh, transport links that link up the north because Britain is too London centric so therefore the pressure uh, is particularly bad in London and the southeast and I think those those solutions are the only ones although obviously um, when you pull up HS2 you have the same kind of arguments mm. and they're totally understandable I had a friend who was who lived opposite the Emirates uh, and that was going to be built the new Arsenal Stadium and he was he was incredibly resistant to it and people were sort of saying you're such a NIMBY and he said they're building a huge stadium opposite my house of course I'm going to resist it <laughs> and that's just the way human beings are yeah, it's Patrick, understandable you, would you say that the goal or the aspiration of home, home ownership will, will ever go I hope not I, I think it gives people their freedom it also gives them their pension um, because uh, you're putting money away into your house and then at the end of the day you might downsize and you've got, you've got some money you're not saving. H- how many people still live with their parents and, and have a, where houses are big enough stay, stay in the nuclear family? Well, when you hear people talk about this, there are a lot of people who think that we will become like Far East communities where we live in a house with grandma who's the matriarch, the next generation and the children. That the idea that you that once you had been to university, you left home and established your own household will become something that only the fortunate few can do. Maybe we will have to live differently. Maybe we should also ask whether we should be spending 23 billion on housing benefit and not building any more social homes. I mean, I just think that the whole issue of housing and how we're going to live, we need to have a full and frank discussion about it without fearing to offend any single group within 
society. Well, this opens up a can of worms everywhere. You can talk about influx of immigration, the pressure that has on housing. But I just wanted to ask you about the, the spare room subsidy or the bedroom tax, because that's an example of people moving out to get their own place when there is still space they could have been living in with, with their families. But again, one of the problems that that policy faced was there were not sufficient numbers of good quality one and two bedroom social homes into which these people could move. No, well, that's true. The policy was started on and I think it's probably quite right that people should free up larger houses for people on the waiting list but you need to have places for them to move into. Whenever you hear anybody in housing talk the word broken about the current model of social housing comes to the fore and I have to agree with them. And, uh, and Patrick's point though about for most people about the house the property becoming the pension what could ever replace the house in I, that role. I have a great deal of fear about people who are sort of 30 something now who never managed to get onto the housing ladder. How <coughs> do they live in retirement mm. being forced to pay rents out of inadequate pensions and without a home that they can sell for their long term care? I see a number of the headwinds facing mm. the housing market are just extraordinary, mm. and we know that. In the good times and the bad, whatever, a home is shelter, and it can also be a store of value. It's not always a reliable store of value. But if you reach retirement and you have a home of your own, you can, if nothing else, offer accommodation to other family members, mm. which may be needed. Right. Well, that's a problem for this prime minister, and it'll be a problem for future prime ministers. So we'll move on to our, our third item, David Owen has uh, Lord Owen, he's proposed that there should be a, a sort of fixed term of two terms only for Prime Ministers in a private member's bill that he's bringing before the House of Lords. Those of us with um, elephantine political memories will uh, remember that um, Danny was once a very distinguished advisor for, for Lord Owen in the early days. And I wonder whether when uh, Lord Owen was was looking at the prospect possibly of becoming Prime Minister, he had this view then. <laughs> I think you misremembered I wasn't a very distinguished uh, <laughs> I wasn't okay, distinguished. <laughs> um, but, um, well, look, David Owen actually comes to this, um, approaches this from a different uh, angle to me. So he start, his starting point um, is the work that he's done on hubris. He came to believe that one of the causes of the Iraq war was that Tony Blair had become a set, effectively a narcissist um, who believed that he was, too, begun to sort of call himself we, as Margaret Thatcher did in her final years, and had become um, to, to believe that he embodied the truth and he sort of thought that was a deterioration in his psychological state and he's actually written books mm. on this hubris yeah. and he's developed the idea there was a syndrome and yesterday he had a massive conference um, that was designed to discuss this with medics and there's quite a lot of medical support for his idea that not necessarily regarding Tony Blair but regarding the idea of hubris syndrome. I will leave that to the medics uh, whether or not it exists. My start was, came from a slightly different angle which is that I, I, it's about time for David Cameron to be asked whether he'll serve the next term as Prime Minister but as you know Phil as a lobby correspondent there is only one answer. I know that you, it was one of your most famous stories Blair's story to you about, um, the, about whether he was going to last mm -hmm. through the Parliament. You either cause a massive row politically uh, or you don't tell the truth or you make yourself a lame duck. So uh, 
my view is that a, a situation where a politician is asked a genuine question of public importance but in, is, a, is in a position where they cannot tell the truth is one that shouldn't subsist. So I am quite tempted by the idea, though I can see the downsides of it, and I certainly think it is worthwhile having a debate on the subject of a term limit that would allow a Prime Minister to say, I will serve uh, two terms of a fixed-term Parliament, which probably ought to be four years rather than five, by the way, and then uh, with six months left before the second general election, I'll stand down and somebody else will run. But Patrick Kidd, wouldn't that have deprived us, political hacks, of the two greatest stories we've had in the last few decades? Um, I covered uh, the Thatcher years and I covered the Blair years, and there's no doubt that the most exciting times was there in both cases, the was their fault. Yes. Uh, and both of them got through three elections. They both had three election wins, and then they were yeah. done in by their own party. But, Danny, just back on those two, without you declaring, making any sort of medical uh, judgment, was there a feeling at the time, do you think, that in either case that they had gone on too long? Well, I think I, I, that certainly was the reason why Margaret Thatcher ended up falling uh, from power. So, you know, you can, ri you can ride your luck. I mean, any statistician will tell you at some point even if you've got a very, very high hit rate, you're going to end up creating too many enemies and getting yourself in a position where you had to resign. So I think if you, uh, without taking it, it's all a judgment on the psychological um, side of it, there's no question people felt the market actually had gone on too long. And actually, I think that's why the Conservative Party ended up losing such a big way in 1997, mm. partly because actually she'd gone on for quite a long time and then the government had gone on a very long time. So you can argue against David Owen's proposals. Look, the electorate just dealt with the problem in the end. And and that's why I'm not so convinced of it on the grounds that he poses. But I'm more interested in this idea that a prime minister is asked, are you going to serve through a parliament? And he is forced into giving an answer that isn't true, which is the one that Blair effectively ended up giving you. Now, he, he may have meant it to be true, of course, and by then giving you that story, Brown then became mm. furious that he was intending to go on for so long and pushed him out. But it also quite possible that he wouldn't have lasted as long as he um, thought even if he'd planned it himself because he knew that he had to give Brown some run up to the election. Blair once said to me that he regretted telling me the truth over when I asked him on a trip to Australia once whether he had a timetable in mind yeah. and he said he had and of course that set off a massive speculation why we were all in Australia and he said yeah. to me much later so I, re I regretted telling well, you Well you know I've been in a few situations um, later where I've thought to myself uh, I regretted telling the truth and whenever I find myself thinking that I think that's a very bad position to for 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 the structure of politics to put anyone in, where, yeah. it, where telling the truth is regrettable, uh, because the public deserves to have a truth on such a big matter. Patrick, should there be a set term for diary editors? What do you think? <laughs> when I took over the job, the, our archivist sent us a list of uh, former diary editors, and only uh, one lasted more than three years. So I'm about 18 months into oh, right. the uh, tenure. You're becoming a veteran. Uh, yeah, well, indeed. I, I just wonder whether there's a danger that if everyone knows when you're going and know the, the day you become a, a bit of a lame duck and, and mm. people around you spend all that time manoeuvring and, and manipulating because they know your, your patronage doesn't really matter. I, I, I take your, your, your point about that. Do you think some Prime Ministers, Danny or, or Anne, grow into the job though and if you gave them an eight-year limit they're actually just hitting their stride? I think the current one looks as if he's flourishing in the job. I've never seen a man look so well in high office. I mean, I'd love to know whether he relishes the idea of another five years. I agree with Danny that it should be four. I think that would be a far more reasonable period because he looks as if he's enjoying himself 
much to the consternation and maybe amazement of a great many people. I think that it depends on the personality. I mean, the reason why the Americans have got term limits is because Roosevelt ran for president in 1944 when he was dying. Uh, And um, it's only by um, a matter of uh, sort of health miracle that Henry Wallace didn't end up becoming president before Harry Truman, just because uh, he was vice president and Roosevelt was dying so rapidly. And it was obvious that he was dying, but he still managed to get re-elected, partly, I suppose, in a different era. People weren't quite as aware of his illness. But everyone around him realized he was dying and then the americans after that when he died within you know only a few weeks of of, of uh, rear of regaining office in um they decided to introduce term limits and there is i think david owen's written very interestingly on the question of people's illness and state of health mm. in in office i've just been reading about francois Mitterrand and the fact that he was suffering for a long time and was therefore uh, from prostate cancer which he ultimately died from and which he was you know heavily using drugs while in office so the state if you look at historical episodes it's impossible to avoid being struck by how strongly health influences uh, people's so for example um, the Boer War Lady Salisbury died in the middle of the Boer War and Salisbury was depressed and um, incredibly uh, distracted and he was you know over 18 stone 5 and he was uh, very ill and um, it's impossible to think that his decision making was not impaired by that so there is a question over whether it's healthy for someone to have a job that is so strenuous for longer than 8 years and Patrick's point about lame duckery as, as it has applied the, to America is quite strong. Look, that it? is the strongest argument yeah. against it. It's yeah. the reason why, as you're aware, I started a bit more enthusiastic about this. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've gone, I welcome his debate rather than I welcome his proposal. So there definitely is that argument against it. But there are some strong arguments to think about as to whether or not we really it ought to be allowable for people to just keep on going and whether much more important than that knowing that they're not going to keep on going we put themselves in a position where they have to tell everyone they are so we end up in a situation where Gordon Brown got elected with much longer as prime minister than people had thought he was going to receive at the election so they effectively voted for two prime ministers at the same time but but under the promise made by Tony Blair they effectively weren't going to have that and I I would think that 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 we would want to avoid that and as for keeping on keeping on we've got to hand it to Lord Owen a man (laughs) who seems you know is yeah yeah. uh, indestructible almost well I think his really his uh, I've thought a long long and hard about him because as Phil uh, said I was an undistinguished advisor to him he is very independent minded this is the sort of proposal that could only come from Mm. him so the answer to your question uh, that you asked at the beginning which was you know if he thought he was going to be prime minister would he have been in favour of this is just as it's just about as unconventional as he is really Mm. Uh, in other words quite possibly yes Uh, because you because his great contribution to politics quite different from other people's I think is that he uh, doesn't come from a party background he operates completely as a loner you he thinks things through from first principles sometimes you know he, he knows that I think this sometimes that he comes up with then an eccentric answer or mm. an unworkable answer mm. but he dro- you know he's constantly pushing forward the boundaries of the political debate because of that and that is his contribution really which is very different from other people's thank you so much thank you for listening for more information please head to the times.co.uk forward slash comment central where you can read more please sign up to the uh, red box email bulletin if you haven't done so already the times.co.uk forward slash red box forward slash sign up and please remember to subscribe by searching the times on itunes bye for now and thank you 
Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.